Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to episode 69 of Strangers in the Cinema. I am one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson, here with my other co-host Pete Wall and producer Jack Mills. A gentleman as ever, how are we? Good man, I guess eventually we could just go by first names, couldn't we, and get all casual with it. We could, yes, but I... I like was... my second name though, so... Do you? Yeah, I do. I don't. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, with that roaring start, um, we've got an exciting episode ahead. We've got all the normal sections that you know and love, but we are going to feature this week our review of The Disaster Artist, um, obviously. I think it's been quite an amusing episode this week, to be I, honest. I, think, I, yeah. I would imagine it's so. Just, not like the others aren't, obviously. But Yeah, for anyone who's not aware, the film The Disaster Artist is uh, a kind of pastiche sort of mockumentary I guess uh, of the filming of the notoriously so bad it's possibly good film uh, The Room and and we're also going to have a very different feature review uh, of It's a Wonderful Life uh, coming up later on but before we do that we're going to get to where we usually get to on the show about this time which is Into the Foyer Paul what do we want to talk about this week in this section so we are going to talk about our favourite crap films basically I think that sums up what we were going to talk about isn't it That's what we were yeah going to I, I think that'll make sense given that yeah. we're doing Disaster Artist this week uh, yeah that film has got this sort of cult following even though it seems to be objectively terrible more on that later so we wanted to pick out something that we think although objectively bad is in some way uh, redeemed to us or just entertaining to us on a sort of personal level Paul what have you got for this um, I reckon we should let Jack go first this week. Jack, do you want to go oh, first? Jack, yeah. you tag the mic. What have you got? Yeah, I think I will. Um, okay, good. So my <laughs> favourite film is 2001's Freddy Got Fingered. Oh, that is a crap film. It is really is. crap, but uh, Tom Green does well to make it fairly funny. It's like it's like watching Tom Green have a sort of nervous breakdown oh, for is, about absolutely. two hours, isn't it? That movie, as I, far as I remember. I actually, it. I think I switched it off. I think it's one of the few films I've ever switched I off. I used to I have it on my it. iPod because I enjoyed it so much that I'd watch it on the way back from college and stuff. Well, that was it was going to be my next question. Maybe you've answered it already. Have you ever watched that movie not incredibly high? Because I think <laughs> like the the one and only time I, I remember sitting through the whole film, I was definitely like on the borders well, generally, of consciousness these, these films generally are much better when you're pissed aren't they you enjoy them more like most of the time I would say I would so, say so yes yeah. I don't think I have watched it sober actually to be fair <laughs> I tried oh, it sober and this oh, is, I, do, I couldn't get through it yeah and be clear I'm not talking about drinking here but uh, yeah <laughs> I, I think the, the sausage piano and stuff is, is better appreciated when maybe you're a, in a relaxed frame of mind is all oh, I'm yeah. saying That's right. well, well put younger well put, viewers yes. or listeners I yeah. should say um yeah, Fre- Freddy Got Fingered, have you seen it within the last few years? Uh, I probably haven't seen it in the last ten years. I, I think say. then we should, once we finish this section, once we finish this episode, and coming into New Year, we should probably re-watch our, the films that we bring up, and then we should popcorn review them. I think that would be worth worthwhile doing. Well, Although we're I, doing it here, though, aren't we? Sure. Yeah, what I'd like to hear as well, though, is, is listeners get in touch and, and add to the discussion, you know, what is so bad to everybody else, but, you know, good to you. For your part, Paul, what what have you got? Uh, I've got 1985's Commando. 
Okay. Um, which is my favourite bad film, and it is fundamentally terrible. There's there's some really howling errors in this. There's one particular that stands out when there, there's a car crash, uh, and the car is damaged on one side, and when it drives, when it flips back and drives off, the car's not damaged anymore. So there's some really obvious errors in this. Uh, Schwarzenegger, the, you've got the whole the whole opening, uh, the opening like montage scene of Schwarzenegger trying to live this family life, where he just makes these terrible jokes about God, George, and the fact he's like feeding his daughter. He gets ice cream on a deer's face on his own or a deer's face. He's feeding a deer, and it's just terribly cheesy all the way through. You've got for my money, possibly cinema's worst ever villain, which is Vernon Wells as Bennett, who's just basically just an overweight bloke in a in like this awful plastic chainmail vest that's supposed to be a match for Schwarzenegger. Not a chance. And there's just some there's some there are there are I what I will give it is some truly classic Schwarzenegger one liners such as do not disturb my friend he's dead tired and this kind of stuff. Um but yeah Commando always makes me laugh. I'm gonna say I don't think there is such a thing as necessarily necessarily so bad it's good, but I'm gonna go with so bad it's funny and Commando definitely hits that for me. It's it's all a relief because when you said you were going to go Commando for this section, I was no. a little bit concerned. <laughs> um, I've picked out. I don't know, man. That Paul, you watch it like like I have been known to watch a load of like really um, weird sort of out there stuff, which could qualify for this section. I think it but could do. Yeah, I've kind of gone like I usually do in, in this section of the show for the first thing that popped into my head, which is the film Feast from two thousand five. Um, I think the the reason I've gone for this one basically it's about a, a bunch of people who are locked in a bar and have to fight some monsters. I thought it was um, all right. The, 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 I liked it. I mean, yeah. that's what this this part is. Yeah, yeah. But this is a Balthazar Getty that you'll know from like um, Lost Highway and elsewhere, and uh, Henry Rollins, uh, you know, from Black Flag and other places. Uh, Henry Rollins, I'm pretty sure in Feast, volleys a baby, and that's one of the reasons why it gets straight into this uh, this countdown also uh the sequel to this film do you know the subtitle paul no i actually don't this is not this is not a series i've seen all of i've only seen the first feast so feast is followed by feast two sloppy seconds so make of that what you will uh the the bar of quality is not so high with that one but i remember enjoying it quite a lot of the time so that's why i went for can i can i add something to this sure you can man can i add um and this is just the film that's so bad it's bad can i throw in ginger dead man here Ginger Dead Man. The Ginger Dead Man, yeah, which is a film where Gary. Is that about Connor? Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Sorry, don't hurt me. Uh, this is where Gary Busey voices a um, a ginger dead man, a gingerbread man that comes back to life. It's a serial killer gets baked into um, a gingerbread Oh, so it's Gingerbread Man, not Ginger yeah, no, Dead Man. It is man. Ginger Dead Man. The film okay. is called Ginger Dead Man. Uh, Gary Busey voices the Ginger Dead Man, um, and it's just so bad it's bad. It's one of the worst films I've ever seen. And I think they actually delay the opening credits to make it up to a feature length running time because the opening credits take so long to go through and also and it just because you bring up the name of sequels the sequel there is Ginger Dead Man 2 which I haven't watched but the subtitle to this you're not going to guess what this is are you ready for this are you ready for this Jack are you ready are you excited Ginger Dead Man 2 The Passion of the Crust <laughs> they they made the film because someone came up with that title yeah, totally, and yeah. Gary Busey needed yeah. some more drug money or something yeah, I would I have thought so yeah so um, yeah don't watch The Ginger Dead Man that's not a recommendation it's not even so bad it's fun to watch it's just so bad it's bad well more um, on more on bad movies that some people deem to be good when we get to our disaster artist review later but we'll be back in just a moment with our popcorn reviews
so back we are with our popcorn reviews. Um, I'm quite eager to go first because I've seen a film that I've been anticipating for quite some time why, why and I'm very just, excited to talk about it. Why don't you just goddamn get on with it, Paul? I will get on with it. I bloody well will. Um, this is um, Brawl in Cell Block 99 um, from this year, directed by uh, S. Craig Zala, Zala, I think his name is. Um, he previously directed the rather good uh, Bone Tomahawk, the um, Kurt Russell starring... Still haven't seen that. Brutal, brutal Western. Um, and Brawl in Cell Block 99 is, uh, I would say, a, certainly a different, a very different turn from Vince Vaughn, uh, leaving comedy way behind him. He's had a few, few serious roles recently, but this one is um, this one is a massive departure from what we're used to seeing him in. Um, he uh, basically plays a kind of like hard, not not a drug dealer who kind of drives drives for drug deals. Basically, um, he's trying to raise money for his pregnant wife. Uh, things go wrong, and he ends up in jail. Um, his wife gets kidnapped and he ends up in this high security wing um, and has to. That's the, the film goes from there really um, what I didn't realise is that in real life and I, I sidetrack here briefly in real life Vince Vaughn is 6 foot 5 were you aware yeah, of that? Massive. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and actually this film like, it really plays on his physicality and it's absolutely savage like, he plays he, pl- but he plays it so well he plays it he is terrifying in this film the film in places is absolutely brutal. We're talking like full on kind of exploitation kind of I would say hobo with a shotgun kind of level of gore here. But but much like in Bone Tomahawk, it's the director knows how to use gore uh, violence really, really well. There's not so much overt gore as just just outbreaks of just savage violence that will make genuinely make you wince and and like it's but it's so tense. The first half is so tense. Uh, getting to jail, you know something's going to go wrong because the film's called Brawl in Cell Block 99. It's such a tense film to start with. Vince Vaughn's fantastic in it. Um, and when it does finally get to the, um, the the brawl itself, it's brutal, absolutely mm. brutal. So not for the faint-hearted, but certainly I would say one of the most entertaining films I've watched this year. Um, it might it might trouble the top ten. I haven't decided yet, kind, but it's, kind of, it's really, really good. Maybe I'm way off base. Like, what you're saying is making me think of uh, Raid 2, just it's, with the, it, uh, the setting and the, the yes kind and of level no, of violence. Yes I would say it's out. it's not it's not as sort of kinetic in its violence. Not I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a, I wouldn't say it's an action film, necessarily. Um, it's certainly more of a thriller, so it's... And it's it's very sporadic outbursts of violence. So there is the there's the occasional scene, but when they when he does use it, much like in Bone Tomahawk, it's nice to see a director that knows how to use violence well. To the point where said so my wife came out and she was like, I don't know if I liked it because the violence was that savage. It should be that way, and it works, but mm. it really is not for the faint of heart. And I mean, it is savage. So that is, but it's in, brilliant. Brawl in Cell Block ninety nine yes. currently holding a meta score of seventy nine. So yeah. you're obviously not alone in, in your praise for it. It's been uh, on limited release at least in the UK, and is available currently through Amazon. So if you're yeah, I rented it from Amazon. I think it's you can buy it on Xbox Movies, and I think you can you can buy it in a few places. I think we're starting to see this now, like different distribution models, where it's just kind of just crept out immediately onto Amazon rentals. It so, starts to yeah. find an audience and then maybe it'll be on a, yeah. a on a bigger platform. It's not cheap to rent at the moment. It was like £8 to rent. But yeah, we'll see where it goes. But yeah, super, superb thriller. If you like that kind of thing, then definitely check it out. Well, talking of things available to stream currently, um, my first review this week is a film called Voyeur, which has just gone live on Netflix. Um, it's a documentary that charts... 
the journey from somewhere in the 1980s to almost the present day of the journalist Gator Lees, who I think is a f fairly well known for writing for The New Yorker, amongst others in the States. Um, he is sort of not on the trail of, but sort of um, intrigued initially by the story of a guy called Gerald Foos. Gerald Foos, um, as he tells it, buys a motel or bought a motel somewhere in the late 60s or 70s, I think, with the express purpose of spying on all the people who stayed in that motel. So I immediately thought of something like that movie, uh, is it called Slither? From, oh, yeah. with Sharon Stone from the early 90s um, oh Christ that I remember right? yeah. That yeah that is a film Sliver Sliver, Sliver. yeah yeah because yeah. Sli Slither is um, James Gunn yeah you're yeah, right yeah. Um, something like that I mean the the setup, the idea is intriguing the execution here is so wrong headed as to be um, in, pretty enraging to be honest both Gator Lease Gerald Foos and the filmmakers themselves seem to not be able to recognise the elephant in the room, which is that what this man did is absolutely abhorrent. Right. But what we get, instead of an investigation of the possible, well, obvious uh, moral ethical implications of spying on, uh, you know, unknowing, paying customers guess in a motel instead we get a, basically a vanity project by a journalist who wants to keep himself relevant he's writing a book about this called uh, the voyeurs motel i think it's going to be his great new publication that's right. going to be sort of a new york times bestseller or whatever all of this comes a bit off the rails when it comes to light that our man gerald foos believe it or not might not be the most reliable narrator of his own story who would believe that a man that would buy a motel to spy on people in a really pervy way yeah. isn't telling you the God's honest truth. I mean, it's incredible. So, yeah, I I see why Netflix would put a property like this on their platform because it's going to get it's going to grab attention and it's going to get eyeballs. However, you come out of it with a really bad taste in your mouth because so little is done to investigate the implications and the ramifications of this man's actions on the people that he affected and the lives that could have been damaged. I mean, at the centre, and I'll finish with this, at the centre of the story is the idea that at one of the times where he's looking through one of the grills in the ceiling, this is how he spies on people, these grills, looking down on a situation where a drug dealer stashes some drugs. Uh, Gerald Fu said in his diaries that he keeps, uh, long, long diaries, that he went in and took the drugs. Because the drugs weren't there anymore, the man essentially strangled a woman to death whilst he's watching, but he didn't report it because he didn't want to get in trouble for, um, you know, voyeurism. Um, I don't think that story took place. I think he's made that up. But either okay. way, the guy is just an awful human being. And by the end, we're supposed to feel sympathy for either him, Gay Talese, or both. And it's, yeah, what definitely right up there for least palatable film I've seen this year. So um, that one is Voyeur. Wow, I know what's coming, I know what's coming next on your popcorn as well. So that's, uh, that's impressive. Paul, what have, what have you got um, next? I think we've got, well, Jack, you've watched this as well this week, haven't you? So um, we'll, we'll, bring you on the, we'll bring you in on this as well, which is always nice. Um, genuinely, there's a compliment there. Oh, it's, thanks, rare for the, it's rare for the podcast, isn't I it? I enjoyed that very much. Uh, good, good. Uh, this is uh, Stronger. So this is, from, again, this is a, a relatively new release. So, well, it's been out a week, I think, we now. previewed um, it a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, so this is um, yeah by David Gordon Green. Um, this is tells the story of, the well, the, re the true life story of Jeff Bauman, um, who lost both his legs um, during the Boston Marathon attacks back in 
2013. Um, so it's pretty harrowing stuff, as as you can imagine. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal here um, plays the um, the main character, uh, and he is supported by is it Tatiana Masali, isn't it? Maslani. Maslani. Orphan um, Black uh, star. Yeah. yeah. Um, so basically, he pl- yeah. Jo- so yes, yeah, sorry. Yes, it's a film about that. What? <laughs> Jack, Jack, pick up the slack. What happens, yeah, yeah. What happens in the movie? Does it work? Uh, it does. And I think it is as a biopic of uh, this harrowing event that happened not so long ago. Um, it does make you sort of feel for the character who has obviously had this really terrifying thing happen to him. He's lost both of his legs what does he do in that situation? How does he feel in that situation? And I think uh, this film really captured that. However, there were some really sort of dull moments where it was a bit like, this shouldn't be in the film. They've added this just to make it up to sort of the story, I guess. Um, but I think there's also funny moments. And we were there talking about this earlier. There are moments, yeah. Yeah, um, especially the one that I think is in the trailer, um, when he's on a swing and he sort of swings himself off of this swing with no legs and lands on his brother. Um, and that was quite a funny moment and the cinema did fill with laughter. Um, and I definitely would suggest going to see this film because it shows sort of this event really well, but it also makes, you know, makes you connect I suppose with the character but for me there were I think possibly some more problems um, than with Jack on this one I'll be honest um, I think there is there is the bones here Pete of a very interesting film and mm. actually some of what they touch on I think is fantastic so there are elements of this whole they've got this whole Boston Strong thing so they, his family really want him to go on Oprah for example and really promote and go out and kind of wave the flag at major yeah. sports events and this kind of thing and there's and no one really asks him if he wants to do that. It's just assumed that he will be bossed and strong and, and represent. And there's there's that's where the film is at its most interesting is where you go let do you know is this fair to ask him to do this? And there's there's like a, a sort of reluctant hero. Yeah, yeah. And it's just yeah. and ultimately and there's there's a fan, there's a fantastic conversation that takes place in a bar where someone says, "Oh, it's great to meet you. You haven't let them win." And Jake Gyllenhaal's character turns around and he says, uh, basically, but what do you mean they haven't won? I've lost both my legs. Mm. Like, so that bit, those bits are quite interesting. But my problem comes, especially, comes probably towards the end of the film. I think Gyllenhaal's great as ever. I think the performance is really good. My problem comes towards the end of the film. I think it, it bottles being that film and then comes to, um, and becomes more of a sort of flag-waving, gung-ho American Hope over, you know, and I understand that you you need to take something positive. Trying to need need to take something positive. Well, and you're looking for a particular audience, yeah. Sort of white. Um, But then you've so you've got certain scenes that may well have taken place, like conversations he has with with people in a sports stadium towards the end of the film, where he meets a marine who lost his brother, um, and he tells him what what a hero thinks he is. But the way the film handles these is so overblown. So I'm not arguing that these events might have taken place, but. I don't believe that he would have had this conversation with this Marine surrounded by a crowd of about a thousand people who look on and start, you know, almost like they're about to break into applause. So I think yeah, the film the yeah. film becomes, as much as it's watchable for the performances, and I would agree with Jack, I'd say s- certainly watch it, it just becomes 
too overwrought and very cliched and a bit generic for me towards the end. And it's been not but, that long since we had a Patriots Day about the Boston bombings, yeah. which we, we like quite a bit, the Peter Berg movie, yeah. right? Which I really was like, uh, really su- surprisingly um, yeah. engaging. Yeah. That That's yeah. right, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm interested to see this one and form my own opinion. I would, I would watch it. I'd temper Jack's, for me, I'd temper my enthusiasm a little bit um, because it, it, just, it just hits a bit. I mean, I did really numbers, dislike but. his family throughout the thing I think you're kind of meant to dislike his family though, yeah absolutely I think, I think um, that worked yeah okay well that yeah so that one was uh, stronger with uh, Jake, Jack we did Jake that Jennifer together did you on wide release that? I did that yeah, was very good. nice good right. Pete what have you got next <laughs> let's talk about weird Japanese stuff um, Sion Sono is a director that I've discussed uh, just a couple of weeks ago actually in preview of this film which is uh, anti-porno from 2016 although only just available here now via the movie service which so is that its official UK release then via movie or is that I is it probably... don't think it's anywhere else no, okay. I mean you might you can probably buy it on disc at this point um, but, but that might be your only other option as far as I know I mean correct us if we are wrong but uh, we previewed this with not much expectation of getting hold of it anytime soon at least through sort of legal channels, which are the ones that we always go through, obviously. Um, but lo and behold, Mubi uh, grabbed it up and, and put it out. So, you know, props to them for that. I, the, well, where do we start with anti-porno? Okay, so there's this... Mo- I'm glad you're setting this up, to be there's honest. A, there's a little movement, a little uh, movement, uh, like a project at the moment uh, amongst a, a group of film directors who are supposed to be making... Roman porno revival films where the basic idea was that you can the director can do basically whatever they want as long as there's a sex scene every 10 minutes so this is something that Sion Sono who is this sort of flamboyant um balls to the wall uh gay director of um all kinds of proclivities decides to take on by the horns, I suppose. And instead of presenting something that is just sort of leery, as the title might express, anti-porno is supposed to be turning the tables on exploitation cinema, let's say. Um, This is all to set up the fact that what we have is a story about, at least initially, a story about a young Japanese artist slash filmmaker slash designer who's in a what seems like a fairly artificial space surrounded by artwork and she is joined by her assistant who she seems to just abuse and bad mouth and seems to be big looking at the beginnings of some kind of dominatrix submissive relationship with that assistant before the rug is pulled out from under us and we realise that this is all artifice and there's a film crew and she's being filmed and the power dynamic is actually the other way round it's the actress playing the assistant who has power over the woman playing the original dominatrix I hope you're still with me Um, (laughs) this film for me uh, worked, I enjoyed it I think Sionsono does things visually um, which are uh, just strikingly um like i can i totally agree with you i think visually the film is incredible in places like incredible l- like you like, could say you could say and you would usually mean it sort of metaphorically that he like lobs a lot of the screen and a lot yeah. of color in this film uh, towards the end he's just actually throwing yeah. luminous paints at the uh, the central character <clears throat> but i think that although the gender politics and that kind of 
polemic that exists here is maybe a little bit juvenile or a little bit underdeveloped at times. I don't think Sion Sono is too worried about that, for one. And I also would qualify that by saying that I think there's more interesting here on that front than there was in the much lauded Darren Aronofsky film Mother that came out this year. Um, I would pick this over that, is all I'm saying. Mm. Uh, I thought the performances were relatively strong. Some of the dialogue's a bit clunky, but obviously we're translating from Japanese to English and it, it doesn't maybe come over uh, particularly well at times. I like the ending of the film. It's a it's a crazy ride for all 77 minutes and, and I wouldn't really want it any other way, uh, despite its obvious flaws and limitations. <coughs> yeah, I think my... Because my, I, I watched this this week as well. Um, I think my, my kind of... And I did like it for the most part. My pro- slight problem with it is, again, it's, it's if you do... If you're attempting to comment on the male gaze, for example, and and the how like the, they treat the women in cinema and this kind of thing, which the film obviously is trying to do, it's quite difficult to do that whilst also doing it. If that makes sense, so it, yeah, it, I know you're, what you you're mean. still subjecting the, the the women are still being subjected to horrible treatment, whether that be to prove a point or not. Um, it's still happening on screen, which is where I struggled with the film a little bit. Is, would you, if that's a yeah, fair. It, it's tricky territory, and I mean, we haven't really got time in a review of this length to go into it, but um, I, I do genuinely think, Paul, that it's one where uh, people have to make up their their own minds, really. And if you have got access to the movie platform, it's only, what, six quid a month or something like that. For films like this, and, and many, many others, to be honest, I've just seen the first film on movie that I didn't rate so it's been a pretty high bar so far I would say yeah worth it form your own opinion get a bit of luminous paint chucked in your face and see yeah. how you feel at the end uh, that's it for our popcorn movies unless we've got any other business you guys no, I think we're done I think we'll be back after this with our coming attractions Right, back we are with coming attractions. Um, I went first last time. Pete, what have you got for us? Okay, I'll keep you brief. What are you excited about? Um, I'm I'm somewhat excited about The Greatest Showman, which comes out uh, 20... Well, here it says 26th of December, and I've seen an earlier release date. I think we've got a preview before that. Okay. But I think official date, 26th of December, according according to the IMDb. This is uh, from director Michael Gracie. It's a musical. It stars uh, Hugh Jackson or Hugh Jackman, depending (laughs) on who you listen to. Uh, And one of my very favourite actresses in, in the modern acting game which is uh, Michelle Williams also in here Zendaya who's smashing it all over the map at the moment and uh, Zac Efron who's doing alright for himself alongside Rebecca Ferguson so it's kind of a star studded cast it's going to be a real uh, showpiece forgive the pun and uh, for all the kind of um, possible sort of histrionics and people bursting into song where I could probably just do without that I think I'll enjoy it, and I know for a fact that my girlfriend, no Paul, fiance, it's been a big yes, week. Yes, why did we didn't bring this up? Didn't no, we? it has not come up. I, yes, no. Uh, no congratulations. I, uh, I mean, I knew, but <laughs> I, I, I humbly knelt down to the needs of the show, as I did humbly kneel down in front of my girlfriend and propose uh, just recently, and she uh, thankfully said yes. So she will absolutely love uh, the Greatest Showman. I'm sure of that, and for that reason, if not any other, I'm really looking forward to it. It's out very soon. Uh, what have you got, Paul? Good. Uh, my, we, I watched that trailer, in fact, and my wife said it looked like a John Lewis advert. <laughs> <laughs> but they're really good adverts, yeah. Paul. Yeah. So I'm, I'm intrigued by this one. I'm very intrigued by this one. Um, I've got a film that I have talked about, I think, before on Coming Attractions, but there is a new trailer uh, just come out, and I am super excited for this one now. Uh, this is Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. Um, a new trailer has dropped this week that 
if you uh, if you haven't read the book and were a little bit confused about what was going on in the first trailer, this film this trailer sets the scene for the film, um, and it now looks to me looks incredible. It looks like they've nailed the book. They've played around with a lot of the pop culture references, um, which is great. So now you've got like characters from Overwatch in there. There's Mass Effect characters. The Iron Giants rocked in. Like, I think he was in the first trailer, and basically it's 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 like a, it's just a love letter to to sort of geek culture. Um, without like basically the whole thing set in this video game where you can be whatever avatar you please and the Oasis uh, looks like the best video game ever created and I hope they make one at some point because it looks incredible uh, but I think they've just they've nailed the they've nailed the look and feel I think of the book in this trailer which is nice it gives you a few more Ben Mendelsohn's here on Villainous Duties which is going to be great it's Spielberg doing sci-fi which rarely goes wrong in my opinion um, so I'm very very excited for this what's one. our release date on that one I believe it's the 30th of March or round about the end of March okay. time. So it's, it's first quarter. Yeah, it's, it's a little way off, but um, yeah, I think it would be worth the wait. And but that buzz is just going to build and I'm, build. I'm like super, it. super excited for it. If you haven't read the book, I would rec- certainly recommend doing so before the film comes out because the book's fantastic. And it's, and it's Klein, I think, wrote the book Ready Player One. So if you haven't read it, both of you should. It's wicked. Cool. Keep that in mind. Yes, you should. Um, right, that's that. That was very. That was I've brief. Got a, oh, you've got a coming what attractions. About me? What's you've coming had, up, you've Jack? said a bit of stronger. Go on. Go on, have another go. Okay, thanks. Uh, so I watched this trailer uh, when I went to see Stronger. It's called uh, Journeyman. Um, it's written oh, and directed by yeah. Paddy Constantine and stars. Okay. Um, it's a boxing film. It's about a boxer um, called Matty Burton who suffers an injury uh, within the fight which ultimately um, causes brain damage and sort of what happens with his family and his life and everything surrounding him as he sort of gets better. And I thought... Um, it looked really good. So, and not far off the heels of a concussion, the the Will Smith movie that dealt with the ah, uh, uh, there's an acronym for this, isn't there? But the the brain damage that you can receive yeah, from sure. getting shots to the head, and also particularly relevant in the you know as we develop technology that's better able to detect impact injuries to the brain, not only in combat sports but also in things like American football and where you're taking you know impacts on a regular basis. And Jack, as you've mentioned. This one, directed by Paddy Considine, who brought us Tyrannosaurus. Uh, Tyrannosaurus? Tyrannosaur, sorry. Tyrannosaur, not long ago, which which just smashed me to pieces. Superb so, film, yeah. Yeah, re- really looking forward to this too. I absolutely uh, co-sign on that one. Right, okay. Well, we'll be back after this then with our feature reviews. So... Number one of two feature reviews for this week, Paul, is going to be <coughs> The Disaster Artist, which is one of those films that, although you can go in with no knowledge of a sort of source material, The Room, I think you would be a little bit naive to do so, and it might I, be... I don't think you would take anything from it if you haven't seen The Room, uh, Yeah, I, I, I struggle to, to think how that would be. I mean, I actually put off going to a screening of The Disaster Artist when I had the chance because I hadn't yet seen The Room. I rectified that, and then I got the chance to see this movie. Um, To set it up very briefly, it is a a kind of passion project, much like the source material itself, on the part of uh, James Franco et al., uh, his kind of usual crew of characters, including people like, well, his brother Dave Franco, Seth Rogen, Alison Brie, uh, Josh uh, Josh Hutchison, who maybe isn't in that cadre of people, but is known from like a uh, what's that series? Hunger Games, Hunger Games. thank yeah. you very much that's the one she would not have picked <laughs> uh, yeah uh, uh, loads and loads of other people kind of too many to mention who pop up here from all over the uh, entertainment map they get together to 
make a film about the making of the film The Room by uh, ill-fated director Tommy Wiseau who is a man who went to LA with a dream a lot of cash but very little discernible talent but was able to pull together a feature film through basically a pig-headedness, a strong will and that uh, aforementioned bank balance. Yes. Before we talk any more about this uh, strangest of situations, uh, here's a clip. What line? What is line? I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Okay. Action. What is line? I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Scene 112, take 13. Mark it. Action. I did not hit her. I. Okay, okay. Line. Right, so yeah, in that clip, um, they're obviously trying to uh, film the, well, the, one of the most famous scenes from the room, um, and it's not going that well. Um so yeah I think to before we talk about the Zarsaurus I think you do need to touch on the room very briefly yes we do um, yeah I've got the best setup for you here Paul go on current meta score 9 right okay right. Yeah, so, so it's kicking it's, off from that, know, I think that red most square people, most people probably would have heard of this by now have, if the, even if they haven't seen it um, again watch it drunk with some friends it actually can be very it can be so bad it's funny but I will refuse to acknowledge the fact that it's so bad it's good yeah and I've set up the disaster it is artist. terrible I mean the room you can help me out here Paul but as to the best of my knowledge I can discern that the plot of the room is there is a man played by Tommy Wiseau who has a girlfriend called Lisa. He would do anything for Lisa, yes. as we established early on. <laughs> he has also kind of semi-adopted a boy who may be 15, but is played, I think, by a 26-year-old yeah, actor. He really wants in with that weird threesome at the beginning. Very yes. strange relationship that's yeah. never really explored. He just sort of hangs around. Um, and the, the central conflict in the original film, The Room, is that uh, Tommy Wiseau's character's best friend is... Interested, semi-interested in his fiancée, Lisa, and ends up having a tryst with her that throws his whole life into disarray um, and leads him down a dark path. From the outset of The Room, Paul, because I, as I said, have only seen it very recently, this feeling struck me of like, what is this? And I think a lot of people would have reacted the same. How did you feel the first time you saw it? I mean, I laughed a lot. Um, but yeah, like, what is this? There's, there's, still, you know, there's, there's. Had you been elements. primed to laugh? Like, had people told you this is funny, or you just came to the film blind? Pretty blind, to be honest. So I'd heard, I'd read things about it being so, but one of those so bad it's good films, um, which again I fundamentally disagree with. But more on that later. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd read a couple of bits. I, I didn't really know what to expect, and what you get is an absolute mess of a film. It is, it is dreadful. And about- I mean, his his performance is is funny. Uh, but it's dreadful. Um, he wrote, produced, and directed this thing, and now, and I think now has the audacity to claim that it was intentionally like a black comedy. Actually, it comes up as the end of the disaster yeah. artist. You're like, no, it wasn't. It's shit. Well, he was he was forced <laughs> into a corner, and he fought yeah. back as best he, he could. Yeah. But like to say that Tommy Wiseau has a tin ear for dialogue is to be offensive to people with tin ears. I think. Yeah. Because like, <laughs> it's not just the the bizarre. Eastern European-ish accent that is never fully... You know, his his origin, even in The Disaster Artist, they acknowledge 
nobody really knew where he was no. from and he keeps insisting that he's born and bred in the United States which is clearly not the There case. was some rumour he was like some kind of um, uh, Romanian drug dealer uh, gun runner at some point and that's where his money comes from because he's clearly minted because the room cost like 5 million plus to make that's and they right. shot it on they shot it on digital and 35 mil because well. he decided that's yeah. what he wanted yeah. to do yeah. they don't rent it. I mean all of this crosses over into what we see in the disaster yeah. artist so this review is kind of in tandem but uh, they go to hire equipment in the disaster artist as they did I, I suppose in, in the, the real events of this thing and instead of t- hiring as you would the the equipment that you need for your 40 day shoot <laughs> yeah, he buys, buys everything <laughs> yeah, yeah. because he just decides that's the way he wants to do it and even the people selling the equipment in the disaster artist played by uh, Paul Shear and Hannibal Barres, I think uh, are like almost reluctant to make the deal because yeah. they're like what are you doing yeah. nobody does that in this town you know nobody just walks in and, and buys all the equipment for an entire <laughs> feature film shoot but Tommy Wiseau you know is sort of singing to his own uh, from his own hymn sheet I guess um, and not really following the rules even though those rules are established because they make sense yeah which the, the so the film so the room we'll, we'll try and close on the room and get on the disaster artist so the room makes no sense there's it makes literally no sense there's there's a whole storyline brought in about like someone's the I think it's at Lisa's mother having cancer that's then completely ignored I've had the test results uh, yes. back I definitely have breast cancer yeah and then it just moves on and then certain other things get introduced they just it just makes absolutely no sense it's and, it's awful and, it's very funny unintentionally very funny if probably the first time Definitely when you're drunk. Second or third time, it becomes almost impossible to watch. I, I think the film, uh, The Room, it has an official runtime of an hour 39 minutes. But let's talk about the number of vertical panning shots we get <laughs> yeah. of the city. Just to like establish in the early section, it's just panning up buildings constantly, even though all of the... the bo- well, the bulk of the action takes place in this sort of static, like, sub sunset beach type uh, set design that's supposed to be in a, an apartment right and then the fact that I was talking about this uh, the movie anti-porno during the uh, popcorn movies and the way that that Roman porno revival you have to have a sex scene every 10 minutes Tommy Wiseau obviously was following that doctrine grim, as well they are absolutely grim the sex first scene. scene straight into bed weird yeah. uh, indulgent sex scene not long after two characters meet sex scene I feel sorry for the actress who played Lisa for more reasons than one but I mean we'll get onto that and we should get over I guess into the yeah. disaster artist which is what we're so basically so about. the rumours they've proved to be hugely popular um, with a lot of people and a lot number of famous filmmakers and actors hence the disaster artist so there's been organised screenings and this kind of thing where people bring plastic cutlery because there's plastic cutlery on the walls but anyway like more on the room which brings us to the disaster artist so James Franco has decided to make a film about based on the book that the guy that plays Mark Tommy Wiseau's sort of partner in crime wrote about the production of The Room so you couldn't get more meta than this let's be fair Pete, what did you what did you think of the disaster artist as a film? Take take it um, as take it as an entity in its own I, right. I guess that the first sort of hurdle to get over, and, and, and it may be the hurdle at which some viewers fall um, early doors, is the fact that the appreciation of the disaster artist is to me seemingly couched in a, a an early noughties um, like irony that was all the... Like you remember back 15 years ago when just being ironic about anything was just a, you know, a way of getting yourself out of kind of any situation. Yeah, but it, became, it turned into hipsters, didn't right, it? Right, right. Yeah. It absolutely <laughs> yeah, did. And I think yeah. a lot of the this, this stuff um, that fuels the disaster artist... Excuse me, the, the room success is kind of a form of hipsterdom, right? Yeah. And so then you've got this group of 
clearly um, very successful actors, uh, Hollywood sort of mainstays, seemingly making this film from a position of, of love, but you can't help but feel that it's still bathing in that same irony and maybe capitalising on it for for maybe reasons that aren't as friendly to Tommy Wiseau and, and what he wanted to do. And like whether you care about the guy to begin with, I mean, is I guess a, another question, but I definitely went into it feeling like it would be entertaining to see, you know, all of the sort of folly that surrounded the making of the film. And I think they do a really good job of, of presenting that as a piece of entertainment. You do just get to the end of it and feel like it, maybe it, it wasn't needed. Um, and maybe, yeah, I don't know. You said something like people should just go back and watch the film and maybe... Yeah, no, so I, I, I agree with you. And I, I think James Franco, I think James Franco's performance is fantastic. Oh, it's here. like note perfect. Tom, yeah, it's, it's note perfect. It's brilliant. It does have some very funny moments as to, as to see what it would have been like. And at least this is a comedy that's meant to be a comedy. But yeah, there is a, there is a point where you think actually, is this bullying? Like there are, there are some, I would say, uncomfortable moments. There's also for me in the disaster is too much of them just doing reshoots of scenes from the room I was like that would be funny if it just went on James Franco's Facebook page where you go oh do you remember that time when we reshot the scenes from the room like funny for your friends but I don't really see the point of doing those scenes there's quite a lot of those which again it makes the I, film feel like a very self-indulgent project yeah I mean I guess to come back on that I do I do mostly agree but I suppose some of those are to get then the reaction shots of the people on the set like uh, Seth Rogen who's acting as oh, like a so, producer yeah. yes. and Paul Shear's yeah. got some good stuff so there are like comic foils who are able to to glean some laughs from but the is, stuff that, that they're there's watching. There's that whole bit at the end where they just run loads of... Oh, they of, just run them side yeah. by side. And, and it like, kind of feels like showing off at that point. Yeah, no, it's it? like, like, I get that you can do a good impression of him, but this, I don't know, the whole thing, as much as I did laugh, and I laughed quite a lot, so I'll give it that, the whole, the whole film just felt a little self-indulgent for me. And ultimately... I kind of come down on the side and they've got all these sort of talking heads at the beginning with J.J. Abrams going, oh, what would it, it must have been like amazing to be on set. No, it wouldn't have been amazing to be on set. It would have been terrible to be on and set. And it would have been creepy yeah, then. Like Tommy been, Wiseau yeah. is a creepy guy. Yeah, he's quite actually, yeah. He, he's not quite, I wouldn't say he's quite as charming as he's, he doesn't strike me as, yeah, it's kind of like the this lovable weirdo he's made out to be here. And, and, and let's if you be, see him in an interview, he does come across as quite an uncomfortable guy. And they, yeah. they touch on it, particularly in that one love scene in The Disaster Artist, yeah. later love scene, um, where it is like people on the set confronting him a little bit uh, more directly, even though they're all on his payroll, which is an awkward dynamic, you know, that they do um, get into a little bit in the film. But I feel like the filmmakers do soft pedal a bit when it comes to any real direct criticism of Tommy yeah. Wiseau, because he's so central. Keeping him on side is important for this project. Although the film doesn't get made. Succeeding, yeah, yeah, to, yeah, to some degree. And I, I feel like... Also, this isn't some great underdog story, is it? If you really strip the layers away, this is a rich person who may have some form of vague mental illness, um, at some creepy proclivities towards women, particularly, and forces something through because he can bankroll. Yeah, it. I completely agree with you. Ultimately, and this this is where I struggle with the disaster artist. Is really, and as I said, you've got these talking heads at the beginning. Are they? Do they really believe what they're saying? That it must be incredible to be on set, and actually that he's actually. Oh, no, it's, it's, un- it's tongue in cheek. You'd that, hope. But. You'd hope. It is. But I just, I, I, my, but my point is, I don't necessarily think we should always. Why are we so quick to celebrate terrible filmmaking such as The Room? I, I, 
it's not necessarily something that should be celebrated if you see where I'm coming from. Well, yeah, I mean... As fun as this film is. Something that came to mind, and I, we may have talked about this before, but um, the, the film American Movie from 1999, do you know this one? No. It's the documentary about those uh, these two guys and they're just desperate to make a horror movie. Uh, I believe it's called... Co- <laughs> it's called Coven, but they call it Coven. Right. And, um, they, Which would annoy you. They, no they, keep, they keep running out of... Well, it's acknowledged in the documentary yeah. as well, but like, they, they keep running out of money because they have no money. And they are grassroots filmmakers like you know plenty of people that we've encountered through strangers and elsewhere who are just trying to get their work out there and I would feel the same way and the same kind of sympathy towards uh, Tommy Wiseau as I do towards those characters because it's a fantastic little documentary uh, American movie except for this sort of financial issue where it doesn't you know discredit anything he does necessarily although on its own merits he's appalling filmmaking but it does make you feel like what what are we rooting for like yeah there are laughs yeah Yeah, there are laughs and and bits of disaster artists as you acknowledge paul are laugh out loud funny Mm. it's an entertaining film the room to some degree is an entertaining film although awful but at the end of the day when all said and done it is a bit more like seth rogan paul shear uh, and the Franco brothers sort of all patting each other on the back because yeah. they've done something really goofy and ironic, right? Yeah, I know. I, I would agree with you on that one. I, yeah, and I think that's probably all we have to say on that, isn't it? We've gone on for a while on this one, which is always good. Yeah, we'll be um, back. We've got quite com- serious on a <laughs> on a comedy there, but yeah, yeah. it's actually all right. But yeah. yeah, those those criticisms definitely stand up. Um, we'll be right back with a very different review, which will be our review of "It's a Wonderful Life." Right after this. So back indeed we are with a review of as Pete I've just repeated what you said beforehand we're back with a review of It's a Wonderful Life I've said it anyway Um, yeah Pete set this one up for us so uh, for those unaware It's a Wonderful Life a film from 1946 directed by Frank Frank, uh, Capra theatrical brief theatrical re-release I think I don't know whether it's gone wider I think other I think generally it went quite wide this which is quite nice to see it on the big screen so yeah absolutely sorry to talk over you there Um, yeah Frank Capra the director as I mentioned uh, the the basic premise here is something uh, a little bit akin to maybe A Christmas Carol uh, in certain elements The, the central character Uh, who is played by James Stewart, is a man trying to make his way in life, trying to succeed, trying to make money, trying to find maybe um, the beginnings of a sort of happy, settled family life, but always dreaming big, dreaming of more, dreaming of adventure and uh, challenge and travel and this kind of thing. And he gets to a kind of a, a moment of reckoning where he feels like his life has gone on such a trajectory that he can't go on anymore. At this moment, he encounters um, a guardian angel, and the guardian angel comes into his life in the last third of the film to show him what life would be like if he got his wish and had never been born. Here's a clip. It's against the law to commit suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Where do you come from? Heaven. How'd you know my name? Oh, I know all about you. I've watched you grow up from a little boy. What are you, a mind reader or something? <laughs> well, who are you then? Clarence Oddbody, AS2. Oddbody? AS2, what, what, what's that, AS2? Angel, second class. So, yeah, I think the immediate thing that struck me about watching this again... Um, 
was the fact that it's still surprisingly relevant today and actually in somewhat somewhat sad I mean, it saddens me a little bit to think that nothing really seems to have changed since 1946 um insofar as the fact that it, you know he is James Stewart's character is desperately trying to kind of He's, well, it's a buildings and loans thing, isn't it? So basically, yeah, they're, they're loaning money to, for people to build houses. Go on, Peter. That's right. Sorry, I just wanted to say, we should say the film is actually set in the 1920s, not the yeah. 1940s, because it, it pivots on the Great Depression, right? Yes. And the downturn yeah. and the runs on the banks and stuff like yeah. that. Um, but yeah, relevant, you were saying. Yeah, I would say still, still, sadly, still relevant now. I mean, I suppose it's ultimately about, it is about like looking beyond work and beyond money and looking to actually the things, the things that you've got in your life because the, um, the Clarence, the, uh, angel, uh, basically shows, uh, James Stewart's character, um, what life would be like without him and kind of teaches him a lesson really like this is actually all the good you've done so the the message is fantastic um the fact that people i would say are still working too hard still too focused on money and still uh, is genuinely saddens me to this day so that the, yeah surprisingly still as relevant now as i think it was when it came out yeah i mean the the thing that leads uh, the james stewart character ultimately to go to the to a bridge um, and look down at the water and consider taking his own life is the loss of a substantial sum of money uh, it was eight thousand dollars in the film which i think these days would be uh, m- like huge multiples of that amount i don't know i figured it out when i was watching it the other day but a lot of money <laughs> let's say um <laughs> although i you it doesn't really take away from anything here, but Paul, you would acknowledge that the um, that part of the film, which is so pivotal, is based on a contrivance. Because the way in which that $8,000 is lost... Should we just talk about that for a second? <laughs> let's, let's touch on this that, yeah. Uncle Billy, Uncle Billy just has to go to the bank and deposit $8,000, which amounts to pretty much the sum total of the uh, the, the wealth of the bank and, and trust that they work for, and um, manages to fold it into a newspaper and accidentally give it to like the most evil man in town. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Oops. And, and then I just want to add to this... I'm going to sound a bit cynical, but also he doesn't. He says, "If I, I wish I'd never been born," but really he's supposed to be like wanting to end his life. And so going back and seeing what would life would be like if you'd never been born doesn't actually chime with what it would be like if he committed suicide. Just saying, just saying. No. He still would have done all those things. No, however, but however, it's more entertaining. No, no, for I'm not having that. I'm not having that. Okay, Clarence is tasked with saving him and saving his life yeah so Clarence decides the way he's going to save his life Fair. is to show him what life would be without him I'll take that so, yeah. but, but then but then Clarence is you showing you leave Clarence alone Pete yeah but then Clarence <laughs> is showing what life would be like without him but originally he doesn't want life without him he just wants the end of life they're slightly different things yeah, but that's how Clarence has chosen to save his that's life that's how Frank Capra has chosen to present this story yes. and all the better for it it is yes uh, yeah it's, it's definitely a, a more crowd pleasing affair and a, a sort of classic Christmas movie for it's class- I mean, it, it's it's classic cloud pleasing, yeah, cloud pleasing, cloud pleasing, cloud pleasing, yeah, rains all the time. Uh, crowd pleasing Hollywood, um, and I think it's it's all the better for it. To be honest, I said my only my only like I haven't se- I'd watched this at the cinema as, as we said I haven't seen it for a number of years. Um, my only slight criticism I think um, watching it recently is that it possibly takes a little bit too long for Clarence to arrive on the scene. 
Um, I think it's what two and a half hours. A bit, a very long way into the film. Although yeah. the, the the film is very well directed and James Stewart gives a fantastic performance. James Stewart's voice is very very cool. I was I was trying to work out in my head as whether I can do a James Stewart impression. I, I, I can't. I'm not going to try. I, I also appreciate um, Paul, uh, and I'm sure you will too. Like the uh, the technique for aging, because just the yeah. day we we saw um you know the first Captain America where they do that yeah. like little kid version of yeah. him with CGI. But at this time, what they did is they just go, oh, you're. 21 or whatever even though James uh, Stewart during the filming of this thing I think was 38 years old <laughs> but it's like oh yeah you're, you're just you know what was he supposed to be in college or something yeah. in the beginning it's a, yeah. kind of a bizarre thing did, but there's just those you know there's the, James Stewart's great there's despite that that's Don, like Donna criticism. Reed as well who yeah. plays his Donna wife Reed's excellent. but there's so fantastic. many there's so many there's so many wonderful scenes in this like uh, there's that whole scene in this, the whole scene towards the beginning in the um, when, at the dance, mm. and uh, like to try, they were upset that James Stewart stolen the stolen the girl basically. So they, it was college mates pull a prank on him where they they turn a key that turn, that on like. Well, the dance the dance floor the dance is the floor cover separates. of a swimming pool, so yeah. it separates with the intention that it's going to make James Stewart fall in the water and make a fool of him. Not only it takes James Stewart what seems like about ten minutes to notice, or he doesn't notice at all. He's so into his dancing that he dances into the swimming. Well, pool. he thinks the crowd are like yeah. ooing and <laughs> yeah, ahhing because yeah. of the moves when they're ooing and ahhing. So because he, he's about he ends to... up dancing in swimming pool and falls in, and then the whole party just—it's brilliant the way they just jump in didn't, after him. Didn't you think at that moment someone's getting hurt here? Yeah, because there no, were just people on people yeah. on people on people into the same tiny little but there's pool. just so much there's so there's like so many things like that and like the guy that the the, the clarence the angel there's just very, some very touching scenes it's just very very it's very very charming i would say it hasn't lost its poignance which is quite nice but it is it's one of the great christmas movies and i would say deservedly so yeah i mean shows its age slightly in the way that james stewart horribly neglects his wife Yes, um, totally. Yeah. D- during the the part at which they've got to run on the bank, he kind of forgets that they're supposed to be on honeymoon, forgets where she is, and just like leaves her to her own devices <laughs> yes. for a while. Uh, also, yeah, j- just the fact that his wife, as we said, played by Donna Reed, is like angelic throughout, and even at her very lowest moment, doesn't ever actually uh, sort of indict him for what he's doing. She sort of says, "I wish." Or why don't you just and then stops, but yeah. never gets actually angry, and you just think like, wow, this this archetype of this sort of angelic housewife is is maybe happily something that we've left a little bit behind. But yeah, by and large, really enjoyed it. It'll put a smile on your face, and it'll make you feel all warm and fuzzy at Christmas because you'll realise that there's so much to live for and so much happiness in the world. Yes, right. I think that nearly brings us to the end of the show. Um, so Christmas is coming up, as you will undoubtedly be aware. Um, so I think next week, are we going to do a Christmas special with a big Star Wars review? Because I'm excited for Star Wars, to be honest. Um, we're going to do some kind of Christmas special. Yeah. Then we will have um, a Films of the Year show, which will go up round about, well, between Christmas and New Year, I think. Yeah. Um, and then we'll be back with something in the new year, possibly a preview of 2018. Probably anticipated that's, films. Will that's come undecided. In then, yeah. So, um, yeah. So we, there'll be one more. There'll be like a Christmas Christmas special episode. We talk about Star Wars, possibly going up. Well, I would say probably going up at the usual time. Um, we might even have a few drinks before that one, I think, because it's the it'll be the Christmas party episode. Drinks so, um, of water, yeah. Drinks of water. It's gonna be otherwise, even Jack of a won't. Yeah, Jack won't know what to do with himself. Otherwise, and, and yeah, as you mentioned, Paul, the uh, films of the year list. Really excited about that. We've already had uh, a load of uh, sort of preliminary discussions about it last year. Of course, our winning film 
Paul was. Um, um, uh, <coughs> excuse me, American Honey. It um, was. That's not because I didn't like it. I don't know why. Yeah, not not easy for me to say. American he wasn't Honey. Sick yes. in his own mouth. Yeah. He was totally yeah. in support of that one. Yeah, American Honey was fantastic. I'm sure this year's film will be uh, just as good. So yeah, really excited. We will be back uh, shortly with all of that good stuff. Yes, uh, and that's about it from us. So uh, thanks for listening, and goodbye from me. Peace. Shut up and sit down.